We are in a teaching series called The Great I Am. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I Am declarations about himself that reveal to us all that Jesus is in our lives. And so we're taking seven Sundays to explore these seven declarations. And if you guys remember last week, we started off by uh, exploring the significance of what I am even means. That in the Old Testament, God would introduce himself to people and he would say, my name is I am. That was the name of God. And so they would call him the third person. They would call him he is, which in the Hebrew was Yahweh the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Now, for us, we have Yeshua, which is Jesus. And we have this God who encounters us personally, introduces himself to us, and says, my name is I Am. Or Jesus says, my name is Yeshua, which means God saves. And we can have this personal relationship with the God of the universe. And so when Jesus started declaring, I Am, He was making it very clear that he was God in the flesh, that he was the same I am that appeared to people in the Old Testament, that he was now appearing in the flesh to live a human life in this world. So that's the significance. Last week we looked at I am the bread of life, and now today for part two, it is I am the resurrection and the life. And so if you've got your notes with you, which you can find in your little mini bulletin, Bulletins are smaller today, but you've got the notes there. They're also on our church app. They're attached to this video if you're watching this on our website, and they're attached to this audio if you're listening to this podcast. Here's our big picture point today. This is what we're going to go after together. Jesus let his good friend die so that he could reveal his resurrection life to the world and teach us priceless lessons about faith. Jesus let his good friend die so that he could reveal something new to us. And so as we look at each one of these I am statements, the, uh, the fascinating thing about them is not simply what Jesus said, but the context in which they happened, right? So last week we looked at there was a group of Jewish people that were looking for Jesus, not for any spiritual reasons, but so that he would feed them again. And Jesus used that opportunity to introduce himself as the bread of life and say, don't just look for bread that will fill you up for one day. Look for the bread that will fill you up for all eternity. So that was the context last week. This week, the context of Jesus declaring, I am the resurrection and the life, is actually in the context of friendship and family. We find Jesus interacting with a family, three siblings, who Jesus was really good friends with. And he reveals all of this through this context of friendship and family. And that's what we're going to explore today. And so what we're going to do a little different. Now, you'll notice in your notes, we've got like 45 verses in John chapter 11. We got 11 more verses in John chapter 12. We're not going to read all of them together today. For the sake of time, I will paraphrase some of them, but I wanted you to have all of them if you want to go back and read the the fullness of the story all together. So what I want to do right now, though, is I'm actually going to start in the middle of the story, and then we're going to go back and tell the story. We're going to start right where Jesus makes the declaration. Now, the story is about a man named Lazarus who is dead. 
And Jesus' intention is to resurrect him. It's to bring him back to life. So we're starting in verse 23 of John chapter 11. And this is Jesus talking to one of the siblings. Her name was Martha. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Right? So they're talking about two different things here. Jesus' intention is for him to rise that day. Martha is thinking about the last day's resurrection. And and I really wanted to dig into this because I had the question, what do Hebrews believe about the last day's resurrection? Because when you read the Old Testament, yes, it talks about eternity here and there, but the Old Testament focuses a lot more on this life, on the here and now. Because we learned last week that the Hebrews were all about working, right? What are the works that I need to do to be righteous with God? And so the Hebrews were focused more on this life. How can I be right with God in this life? And so you don't see a lot about eternity or the last day's resurrection as you're reading through the Old Testament. Also, you have to understand that just like the Christian church today there were different groups of of Judaism that believed different things. So just like today, we've got Baptist churches and charismatic churches and Methodist churches and, and, and all of that, that hopefully we all focus on the majors, that we all believe the main thing when it comes to the most important things. But every church has different interpretations when it comes to the minor things. And it was the same way for the Hebrews. Right? They, had the, they had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Ascends, and they had all of these different denominations that all believed the law and the major things about Judaism, but they differed on the minor things. So it's impossible to say that all Jews believed this about resurrection. But I want to look at what Martha believed, which really reflects the sect of the Pharisees and what they believed at that time. But the interesting thing is that until you get till after the Babylonian captivity, right, which uh, scholars would call the post-exile period, or they might call it the second temple period because, uh, you know, the first temple got burned to the ground, and so after exile, they built a second temple. It was not until this period under Ezra that the Jews really begin to focus on the last day's resurrection. And the reason for that is because the most clear theology on it was prophesied by Daniel at the end of the Babylonian captivity. And so when they came out of captivity, they had this new word from Daniel that now they could understand what would happen at the end of days. Let's read this word from Daniel. It says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine like the glow of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So when we read this, this makes sense to us. 
At the last days, there's going to be a great tribulation, and then there's going to be a day when all will rise, and those whose name are written in the book will go to eternity with God, and those whose names are not written in the book will go to an eternity of shame and contempt and disgrace, which we know is hell. So when we read this, it makes perfect sense. But Daniel's the first person to ever say this. Before Daniel said this, nobody had ever heard this before. And so it was after Daniel wrote this that in the time of Ezra, they began to develop and understand this theology that everyone is going to be resurrected in the last days. Well, what happens until everyone is resurrected in the last days? Well, they, the, the Hebrews had an understanding that there was a, call it a holding place, uh, an in-between place where your soul would wait until the day of resurrection on the last days. And they called this holding place Sheol or Hades. But then during the time of Ezra, they even expanded their understanding of it that there was a separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. So the unrighteous would stay in Sheol or Hades, whereas the righteous, their souls would be in this holding place that's called either paradise or Abraham's bosom. And that's where they would stay until the last day's resurrection. And how do we know this? Well, we know this from Jesus' teaching. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable. And the parable is about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Now, this is not the same Lazarus that we're talking about today. Parables are fictional stories that are used to teach a lesson. So this Lazarus is a fictional character. Jesus just picked a name. Maybe he picked Lazarus because Lazarus was one of his closest friends. But he tells this parable about Abraham, about a rich man and Lazarus. And he says that the rich man who did not live a righteous life ended up in Hades. And the poor man, Lazarus, ended up in Abraham's bosom. And there was a chasm between the two that nobody could cross. So we see in Jesus this Hebrew understanding of Abraham's bosom and Hades. Also, in Luke 23, Jesus was crucified with two other criminals. And one of those criminals professed his faith in Jesus even while hanging on a cross. And what did Jesus say to that criminal? Surely this day you will be with me in paradise. Again, we read that and think, oh, well, heaven is paradise. No, for Jews, when they said paradise, they were referring to this holding place where we would all wait until the last day's resurrection. That's why it says in the book of Hebrews that they all died apart from us, but they haven't received the promise yet because God wants us all to receive it together. Are you guys with me? Have I, have I not lost you? So when Martha says, yes, Jesus, I know that you'll raise him on the last day, she is basically expressing the fullness of this end days theology that was begun by the prophet Daniel. Let's continue on. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
right? So here's Martha saying to Jesus, yes, I know my brother will be resurrected on the last day. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am the source of all of those things. And everyone who believes in me, even if you die in this life, you're going to live forever. And again, remember, Jews were focused on this life. When Jesus came and began preaching, all of a sudden the focus shifted to eternal life. Jesus says it's not just about getting it right for this life. It's about this eternal life that I am promising to you. So when Jesus is declaring, I am the resurrection, what he is saying is, is he's saying, I am able to fulfill all of God's promises. God promised you a resurrection in the last days. I am the fulfillment of that promise. And why does this matter to us? In your notes, you can write it in. It's the difference between confidence versus doubts. When we hear the promises of God, can we be confident that those promises will be real in our lives? We can hear great promises of God and we can think, well, that sounds wonderful for other people that get blessed. But I'm not confident that I'm going to see any of that in my life. And Jesus, when he says, I am, what he is saying is you can be confident that every promise of God is for you. It's for you. When God says, I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, I have plans to give you a hope and a future. When God says, I will raise you on the last day and you will spend all eternity with me. When God says, I will wipe away every sin you've ever committed so that you can stand before God pure of heart. When God promises all of those things, we can be confident in every single one of them because Jesus, because he is the resurrection. The theologian Ravi Zacharias says, when Jesus spoke of being the resurrection and the life, he was referring to his authority to give spiritual and eternal life to those who trust in him. So when he said, I'm the resurrection, what he is saying is, I can give you every promise of God. I have the authority to do it. And then he said, I am the life. What does that mean to us? It means that Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has all authority over death. Here's a fascinating thing. In the story, which we're going to get back to in a minute, it says that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. Now, when we read that, it doesn't really pop out at us. But for Jewish people, it was significant. Because the Hebrews had this cultural belief. It wasn't a biblical belief. This is nowhere in the Bible. But it was a cultural belief amongst Jewish people that when somebody died, their soul or their spirit bounced around for three days trying to get back in the body. And then after three days, then their spirit would go to Sheol or to paradise. This was a cultural belief. So it's significant that Lazarus was in the tomb for four days because that means he was really dead. He was dead dead. His spirit had already bounced around for three days. His spirit was gone. It wasn't coming back. He was dead. And yet Jesus came to declare, I have authority over death. 
Timothy Keller says Jesus is saying that the new life he brings is not just a quality of life or a quantity of life, but an entirely new kind of life that extends beyond the grave. He has authority over death, right? It doesn't mean that he's guaranteeing how many days you'll get, but he is guaranteeing that the days you have are going to be different, and the days you have are going to last longer than death. Hallelujah. And so when we know that Jesus has authority over death, then we can live in faith over fear. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to fear it. There's a part in this story where Jesus is getting ready to go to Bethany where his friend Lazarus has died. And the disciples say, wait a minute, Jesus. Everybody in that region is trying to kill you. We shouldn't go back there. And Jesus says, no, I'm going anyway. And the funny thing is, is Thomas, who I think gets a bad rap, right? We all know him as Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas actually says, all right, let's go. Let's all die with him, right? Thomas is basically like, we're all going to die, but let's go anyway, right? He's not Doubting Thomas. He actually went with him expecting to die. And so Jesus showed, I'm not going to make my decisions based on what man can do to me. I'm not going to make my decisions based on fear. And we can do the same thing in this life because we know that Jesus has all authority over death. So we don't have to make our decisions to please people or because we're afraid of people. We don't have to make decisions because we're afraid of death. We can make decisions based on our faith and who God has called us to be. And we can live a different kind of life. We can live a life of abundance over lack. Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. We don't have to make our decisions based on limiting thought patterns, based on a lack of resources, based on our circumstances. Well, I'm just little so-and-so in, in this little place, and this is all we've ever been. No! Jesus has all authority so we can live in abundance versus lack. We can step out and believe God for great things, and we can do great things, and we don't have to make our decisions based on limiting thoughts because He is the resurrection and the life. Come on. So let's tell this story. There was a purpose in Lazarus' death and resurrection. John, who's the one who writes this story, at the end of his book actually wrote why he wrote the book. Listen to this. So then, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the, of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So what John is saying is, listen, Jesus did tons of miracles. In fact, he said if you tried to write them all down, all the books in the world couldn't hold them. But the ones I chose to write down in this book have a purpose. And that purpose is that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
that He is the Savior, and that by believing, you would find life and eternal life in His name. So we know that there is a purpose why John included this story of Lazarus and this particular miracle. And interestingly, it's the last miracle that John shares with us before Jesus goes to the cross. It's not the last miracle that Jesus did. It's just the last one that John chose to share with us. He wanted this one to stand out. So let's start the story in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. This is interesting storytelling. Why? Because this hasn't actually happened yet. Mary has not yet anointed Jesus' feet. But we know that John wrote his gospel decades later than the other three were written. And this story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet was already in the gospel of Mark. It was already in the gospel of Matthew. And so as John is introducing this woman, Mary, he wanted his readers to immediately connect. You know who she is. She's the one who wiped Jesus' feet with her hair because they'd already read that story in the other two Gospels, even though it hasn't actually happened yet in this particular story. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not meant for death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we have these three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And Jesus loved them. He had a special relationship with them. These were his close friends. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He waited. His friend was sick and he waited. You know, I wrote this sermon earlier this week before Kaoni passed away. And now I get to this line that I wrote, and it's so much more significance. Jesus is willing to let things die to fulfill God's purposes. He's willing to let people die to fulfill God's purposes. Lazarus was his good friend. And Jesus waited two days. A little bit later, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus isn't afraid of death because he knows that death brings resurrection. And that when something dies, great fruit comes from it. You see, you can't have resurrection power without first having death. We love resurrection power. We love seeing God move. We love seeing lives transformed. But we don't like death. But you can't have one without the other. So Jesus is never in a hurry. He works on his own timeline. We want him to move right now. Jesus, move right now. Come right now. Meet us right now. Do this right now. And Jesus is never in a hurry. He moves in his own timeline. 
And he's okay letting things die because he knows the resurrection is coming. And that can apply to so many things in our lives, things we hold on to, things that distract us, things that steal our heart away. And Jesus says, I'll just wait for that to die. And then I'm going to bring a new resurrection in your life. Jesus said, this sickness is not meant for death. It's meant for the glory of God. So his first purpose in allowing Lazarus to die was that God would be glorified. That God would be glorified. And God is going to receive the glory. Continuing on in verse 11. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going that I might awaken him from sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll come out of it. Now, I find reading the Gospels tremendously encouraging because we all have moments in life where we don't get it. We miss the point. There's a lesson to be learned, and we're not learning it. And there's a deep spiritual truth, and we missed it. And I find it so encouraging because we're not the only ones missing it. These were the men who walked with Jesus in the flesh. And they're just like, well, Jesus, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. Why do we have to go? Right? They didn't get it. So then Jesus has to tell them in verse 14, no, 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 guys. Lazarus died. Okay? I was using a sleep metaphor. Clearly, you guys were not tracking with my metaphor. Lazarus died. And then verse 15, and I am glad. Listen, this is his good friend. I'm glad he died for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Later on, right before he's about to resurrect Lazarus, they roll the stone away from the tomb, and Jesus prays a prayer, and he actually prays it out loud just for the sake of the people listening. Listen to this prayer. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they might believe you sent me. Right? He's like, he's like having this out loud dialogue just for the sake of the people that are listening. Father, I only said that because they needed to hear it. Right? But what, what is all of this? What is he trying to do? He wants people to believe in the Son. That the Son was sent from God. That Jesus is the Messiah. So his purpose in all of this is that God would be glorified and that people would believe in the Son. And I believe that in our lives today, when He allows things to die, it's for the same two purposes. God is going to find a way to be glorified in it, and people are going to believe in the Son. So now, let's look at the sisters. And I believe each of these sisters teaches us a valuable lesson, and I believe that we can all relate to one or the other of them. Because what we know about these two sisters is that Martha is the head person and Mary is the heart person. You guys might have heard the story that happened earlier than this where Jesus is at a dinner and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus enjoying relationship with him while Martha is doing everything in the kitchen all by herself. And Martha comes out ticked off. Jesus, tell my lazy sister to get up and help me in the kitchen. 
Right? Why? Because Martha was a head person. Mary was a heart person. We see the same thing after this story in John chapter 12. It says, therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there. And Martha was doing what? Serving again. And Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus. And what was Mary doing? She took a pound of expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. So even after this, we still see that Martha is the head person and Mary is the heart person. So which one are you? I'm a head person, so I can relate to Martha. My struggle is to slow down and stop doing, right? So let's start with Martha, the head person. She's the doer. Back to our story. It says, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 stadia away, which was like two kilometers or something. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. So then Martha, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Right? So we've got our doer who immediately left the house to go find Jesus out on the road versus our feeler who just stayed in the house to grieve, right? So Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise from the dead. Where did we just read this? At the beginning of the story. And Martha said to him, I know. And then skip down to verse 26. After Jesus says, do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and he who comes into the world. So here we have Mary, the head person. And she declares all of these things. Jesus, I believe you have healing power. Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe you're the one that God has sent into the world as our Savior. Right? She says all of these things out loud. But here's the lesson that we learn from Martha. Believing is more than just words. Believing is more than just words. And why do I say that? Because a little while later, Jesus, again, being deeply moved, we're in verse 38 now, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you? that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So what am I getting at here? We have this woman who made all these declarations of faith. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you can heal. And Jesus says, okay, great, roll the stone away. And now she's like, oh, wait. I don't know if I believe you that much. Believing is more than just words. Sometimes Jesus asks us to roll a stone away and we know that what's behind the stone is going to stink. And Jesus wants to deal with the stinky stuff in our life. He wants to dig into the crap. 
and we prefer leaving the crap behind the stone. And so we say, Jesus, I believe. And so Jesus says, great, roll the stone away. And we're like, oh, wait, I don't know if I believe that much. Come on. We can say we believe, which is awesome. We should declare that. But when we know we believe is when we start rolling stones away and allowing Jesus access into the parts of our life that we prefer to keep blocked off. It's when we start making sacrificial decisions that maybe don't make sense in the natural, but we know this is what Jesus has asked us to do. Believing is more than just words. Sooner or later, he's going to ask you to roll away a stone. And he's going to want to deal with that brokenness of your past that wound that's been festering for years that you've never dealt with, that destructive behavior that you keep going back to over and over again. And Jesus says, come on, let's roll away the stone. It's time to deal with it. And that's when we'll find out if our believing is more than just words. How about Mary? Those of us that might relate to Mary, the heart person, the feeler, Picking it up in verse 28, when she had said this, she left and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard this, she got up quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and were consoling her, when they saw that Mary had gotten up quickly and left, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, you have to understand the Hebrew grieving ritual, that when somebody died, they went into grieving. First, they they put on clothes only made of sackcloth because it was rough and itchy, and, and, and they wanted a physical reminder of how uncomfortable they were on the inside as they grieved on the outside. They also covered themselves with ashes as a sign so that everybody would know that they were grieving the death of a loved one. And then all of their friends would come and gather with them in a house, and they would just weep and wail together, and just weep and weep and wail. Sometimes there were people that they were just professional mourners. It's like, I don't even know who died, but I just showed up with everybody else to weep and wail with them. I was just part of their grieving culture. And so all of these people came from Jerusalem because it was a short walk from uh, Bethany to Jerusalem. All of these people came from Jerusalem to be with Mary and Martha. So we know that these women were significant in their community. They were well-known. They were respected. And they had this large gathering. And so you can picture Mary with all of these people around her all weeping and wailing as they come up to Jesus. You guys got that picture in your head? So when Mary came to the place where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him the exact same thing Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now let's stop right here because this is where God gave me a fresh revelation this week that I had never dug into before. When we get to this part of the story and we read that he was deeply moved in spirits, we assume it was compassion. 
right? You all know my favorite word, splonknizomai in the Greek, means to be moved with compassion, moved with love. And so when I read this, he was deeply moved. I would assume it was the Greek word splonknizomai, but it's not. I've been practicing my pronunciation of this one. The Greek word here is embrimaumai. Embrimaumai. Literally, it means to snort with anger. Yeah, exactly. Now, we can picture this because we live on Kauai, right? So I've got, I've got a little dog, a little terrier dog, and she loves to chase anything that will run away from her. Whether it's chickens, birds, feral cats, or pigs, if it'll run away, she'll chase it. But she has learned that the big pigs don't run away, so she doesn't chase them. And so we'll be walking down the driveway here, and we'll hear a snort coming from the bushes. And, you know, you can tell just by the snort how big that pig is, right? You hear the snort, and you're like, oh, that's a big one. And I'll look down at my dog, and she'll look back up at me like, no, I'm cool. Let's keep walking, right? Like, she's not going to chase that one. That's what I picture when I think of a snort of anger. I think of a big pig in the bushes, and you hear that snort. That's what it means literally. So what does it mean in the Greek? It means to be moved with anger or to scold somebody sternly. So that changes the whole reading of this story. Jesus isn't moved with compassion by Mary and her friends that are weeping. He's angry. And it seems like, well, wait a minute. That seems completely out of place. Why would Jesus be angry with them? We know that Jesus has the most emotional intelligence of any human that ever lived. So if he's angry in this sense, then there must be a reason why. Here's the lesson that we learned from Mary, the heart person, is that worshiping is more than just emotions. Worshiping is more than just emotions. Jesus had this whole group of people in front of him expressing deep, sorrowful emotions, and he's upset about it. Why would Jesus, the most loving person who ever lived, be upset about a group of people mourning? Because the source of their comfort was right in the middle of them, and they didn't see it. They were so lost in their emotions that they missed having the Savior being at the center of what they were experiencing. Listen, there's nothing wrong with emotions. There is nothing wrong with grief, with weeping, with wailing. Any emotion that you feel, there's nothing wrong with the emotion. But what Jesus is upset about is when the emotion becomes so consuming that we lose sight of Jesus at the center of it all. Worshiping is more than just emotions. I've seen people in church just worshiping God with all their heart. They're emotional and they're expressive and they're jumping around. And then the other six days of the week, they live the most awful lives. Because worshiping is more than just emotions. Yes, feel your emotions, but meet Jesus right in the middle of them. And if you miss Jesus right in the middle of your emotions then you've missed the very source of your comfort and of your life. So what does Jesus do with this group all weeping and wailing around him? He changes the subjects. He says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. 
Can I just preach right now to anybody who struggles with Scripture memory? This is the shortest verse in the Bible, all right? If somebody challenges you to memorize a Bible verse, go to this one. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could this man who opened the eyes of the man who was blind not have kept this man from dying? Right? So Jesus weeps, and they're all thinking, wow, he's really being moved because his friend is dead. But then they're confused. They're like, well, if he's so upset about him being dead, why didn't he just come earlier and heal him? And we all ask that question, why does Jesus weep? if he knows he's about to raise him from the dead. I've always thought, well, Jesus is just modeling healthy emotions for us. But if Jesus was just angry at them for weeping, why does he now weep? Well, we have to look for context. What are the other times in the Bible that Jesus wept? Whenever Jesus wept, it was in the context of people missing out on or rejecting his mission. When he's approaching Jerusalem, it says he wept over Jerusalem. Why? Because the city was going to be destroyed because they had rejected the Messiah, and he was weeping over it. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says the Son of God weeps and cries out and pleads on God's behalf. For whom? For those who have not believed. Every time Jesus weeps in the Bible... It's because he is mourning for those who have missed out on his mission. So when Jesus is weeping right here, he's not weeping over Lazarus. He's weeping over everybody in the crowd who's missed out on his purpose, which is to seek and to save the lost. So then after he prays that funny out loud prayer that he just wanted everybody to hear, that he was talking to the Father... It says, then when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Right? So he's mummified. And so they got to come and pull all the cloths off of him and unmummify him. And here is Lazarus, who has been dead for four days, standing before them alive. And it says, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Come on. The very purpose of what he set out to do was so that people would believe in him. And that's what happened. But not everybody. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. We always say, well, if I see a miracle, then I'll believe. No, if your heart's not right, you could even see a miracle, and the only thing you could think to do is go rat Jesus out to the authorities because that's what some of the people did. Let me have the worship team come back up today. The large crowd of the Jews, this is a little bit later on, then learned that Jesus was there, and they came, not on account of Jesus only, but so that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Listen, this is what religion does. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And so what does he do? He raises a man from the dead. People are believing and receiving eternal life. 
And what do the religious people want to do? Not only kill Jesus, but kill the man he raised from the dead. Jesus brings life. Religion brings death. We have not been called to religiosity. We have been called to the source of life, whom we can believe and receive the abundance of life that he promised. So let's bring this to a close. A.W. Tozer, the great pastor and writer of the early 1900s, said, The raising of Lazarus illustrates Christ's divine authority over death and his ability to bring new life to those who are spiritually dead. Listen, because Lazarus walked out of that grave, every single person in this room, every single person that we know who has experienced death in their life because of sin can be resurrected in this moment by believing in Jesus. And we can be confident in that because Lazarus walked out of that grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In the late 1800s, Oswald Chambers wrote this. He said, the resurrection of Lazarus teaches us that Jesus is not only the source of eternal life, but he has power to bring life to the dead and transform hopeless situations. Come on, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to be confident in every promise of God. I want you to have faith over fear because I am the life and I have all authority over death. And you don't have to live your life making decisions based on fear, but you can move in the abundance that I have promised you. It's going to be hard. It's going to take more than words. You're going to have to roll some stones away. It's going to take more than emotions. You're going to have to find me at the center of your pain. But in that, you will find life and you will find comfort. And God says, I will take the dead and broken things in your life and I will bring them back to life. And you will find a newness of life, not just a quality or a quantity of life, but you will find a newness of life. And so I just want to believe right now for resurrection power. Will you stand up with me today? There may be dreams that have died in your life. There may have been hopes that you used to have and you have given up. That hope is now dead. There may have been things that you longed for. There may be relationships that have been broken and severed and you fear that relationship is dead. All of those things and God says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. We know right now uh, with our beloved family here that's facing death and, a, and a, an unexpected death. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the source of comfort. He is the source of life. He is the source of hope. And we can be confident in every promise of God. So let me have our altar ministry team come forward right now. And uh, I just want to invite you, if you need resurrection in life in any part of your heart or life, anything in your life that has died, if you're here today and you're experiencing that spiritual death in your life because of sin, then this could be your moment to come forward and to receive that forgiveness of sin and that newness of life. All you got to do is believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus, Jesus. If there's any area of your life that you're hurting, that you need hope, that you need something restored and brought back to life, then I want to invite you to come forward and receive prayer. Don't be shy. Come and receive that ministry. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Joy, why don't you come over here? Let's minister to the Pope family. Thank you, Jesus. Any others, just come right now. Just come right now. You don't have to hesitate. Just come and receive ministry today. The resurrection and the life is here.